Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Okay. Say welcome to the show, Sally Gary. Okay, ready? Yeah, go. Welcome to the show, Sally Gary. There was my wife's on the podcast, second time ever. Thanks, Lindsay. Bye. <laughs> All right, friends, uh, welcome back to the show. Today we are coming to you from Malibu, California, and it is the time where Sally Garrett is finally on the podcast. We've waited a long time. Yay. And it's finally happening. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You are a person that I have thought we need to get Sally on the podcast for many moons, and it's finally happening, and I am just so excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm great filler. <laughs> no, you're great content. <laughs> oh, Luke, this is going to be fun talking to you. Well, you are like someone I respect a whole lot. So let's, um, first of all, you used to be a speech teacher, coach. Yes, coach. I, was a, I was a speech teacher, speech coach. I coached high school speech and debate. Mm-hmm. Then I coached college speech and debate. Yes. So, yeah. Um, and as I just told you, I don't ever do public speaking, podcasting without chewing gum. Did you ever encourage your your students to do that? No. In fact, that was one of the cardinal rules is that you had to spit your gum out. But, you know, this is this is podcast. It's a new age. So mm-hmm. I mean, you're, I did that. You're okay. Ye- I did that yesterday when I was talking. I, I, I didn't notice that you were quite good at, at hiding that. I can't talk without it. Like I li- my voice will like I'll start coughing and all that. It's yeah. So I feel like if you ever get back into teaching, and that might be something to reconsider about your yeah. curriculum. Would you think about that? Well, I would. I mean, it's a new age. It's a it's a new world that we live in. <laughs> so of course, I, I you have to adapt, and or you or you die. Yeah, you have to adapt. Now, if people haven't read your book, which is called uh, "Loves God Likes Girls," that's correct. If my listeners are watching right now and they're not watching with great joy or listening with great joy, they should because I don't get titles right, (laughs) even when the book is sitting in front of me and I don't even have a book in front of me. So That's right. If someone hasn't read your book, which would be a crying shame. Well, it really would be. Mm -hmm. Well, we need to kind of fill them in on who you are. And so I feel like the story, I don't know where we want to start. You went to uh, tech? I, I went to Texas Tech to law school. Uh, before that, I went to Abilene Christian for an undergrad degree and a graduate degree in communication. Mm-hmm. And then I taught for 10 years, uh, coached high school speech and mm-hmm. debate, like we said. And then I kind of lost my mind after working with teenagers for 10 years. That's understandable. Yep. Um, and then I decided I would go to law school. Uh, from there, I practiced law, was a trial lawyer for a few years, mm-hmm. worked with the te- Texas legislature for a year um, in Austin and um, loved that job and then got a call to go back to Abilene Christian University, my alma mater. Uh Can we stop before we get to ACU? Let's talk about trial law. Lawyering, lawyering, trial trial law? Yes. Is that the right way to say that? I've repented of all of that. You repented? Yeah. Okay. So there was a phase in my life where I was reading a lot of John Grisham books. There you go. Do you think that would be an accurate representation of your life during those years? <laughs> there were times that I felt like I was living in a John Grisham novel, yes. Mm-hmm. 
the uh, the firm, I guess that's the one you're thinking of. Uh, that that's pretty much it. I I don't know. There there may have been some dead bodies somewhere in our office. I, yeah. I don't know. But if you don't know, then you can't be held liable for that. That's true. That's 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 legal stuff right there. I just said. that's that's right. So I so I did have a phase for a season of my life where I thought maybe I should go to law school mm-hmm. and you'd I, be good. You think so? Yeah. What kind of law do you think I would do? Uh, I think you would be a great plaintiff's attorney. You would be excellent in the courtroom because you relate to people. You're likable. You're personable. Oh, you're funny. You're the my ju- favorite the guest jury, so far. The jury would uh, relate to you and, and want to find a reason to vote for you. They would be pulling for you from the beginning. Isn't that, Okay, first of all, thank you. Uh, you're always allowed on the podcast if you talk like that. It's a great start. Um, my wife was called in to do jury duty for like a DUI case, mm-hmm. and she said the the defendant was uh, represented by someone who was just not very good. And uh, no, 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 the prosecutor wasn't good. Like mm-hmm. a young prosecutor seemed like she was just out of school, wasn't charismatic at all, wasn't good in front of people talking. The defense person was well-spoken, told some jokes, people laughed, was very relatable. And mm-hmm. she said, I, I want to vote for, for that guy mm-hmm. um, just because I like him more, which is terrifying for the legal system if it's all based on who's most likable. Shh, don't tell anybody that, Luke. That, hmm. Yeah, don't let that get out. Okay, so that's all it is. It, it's a lot of it. Uh, I, I can't say it's all of it. I still believe it, it, it's the best system in the world, but it's a flawed system because the perceptions created uh, often rule the day rather than the actual evidence. Hmm. Yeah, that doesn't seem very just. Yeah, it, it's not a lot of times. Did you ever feel like, I'm just going to go turn over these tables and I'm going to fix the legal system all by myself? Uh, there was a time that, that I ended up, uh, not doing a, a closing argument, uh, because I, I really didn't believe in the case that, that we had. Oh, really? Yeah. What happened to you when you said not to do that? Well, we lost. <laughs> <laughs> My boss was, was not pleased at all with me, but I just couldn't in good conscience, uh, say some of the things that he wanted me to say because I didn't believe them myself. You said, I, can't, I just can't do this. Yeah. Did you ever do that great scene from A Time to Kill with Matthew McConaughey, oh. Samuel Jackson, where you get the end of the courtroom and people are all sweating and you got your white shirt on and you're doing the great speech and then you go, close your eyes. Now imagine she was white. Did you ever say that in one of your closing arguments? Now imagine. She's white. No, no, it was never quite that dramatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we always had air conditioning. Oh. But, um, yeah, I, I, never, I never dealt with cases that were that emotionally gripping. Really? Yeah. So what you see on TV is not always exactly what happens in the courtroom. Uh, very true. Oh, that's weird. So how many of your cases you're just like, uh, I don't really care. It's kind of blah, not that exciting. Mm. What percentage? You know, I had some dog bite cases as a, a baby lawyer. <laughs> dog bite? Is that a metaphor or is that literally a <laughs> no. dog? No, they were, they were literal dog bite cases in which someone had been bitten by a, a dog, oh. uh, a pit bull. You know, there yeah. are 
what we call inherently vicious breeds like chow dogs mm-hmm. and pit bulls and rottweilers. Yeah. And so if you have one of those breeds uh, and, and they bite someone, then you, you've got, you know, uh, people kind of see ching ching. Uh, yeah. There's potential for oh, that's some money there. Hmm. So those were those were just kind of yucky. Hmm. To, yeah, you yeah. didn't really want to sink yeah. your, sink your teeth into that one. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so you did that for a while, mm-hmm. and then you decided I'm uh, I'm leaving this. Mm-hmm. You're you're gonna hang up your uh, what kind of shoes did you wear in the courtroom? Hang up your uh, high heels, hang most up, definitely. Hang up. You're not wearing high heels. You hung up your high heels and said, "I'm going to move on to something else." Right. What caused that? I, you know, it was, it was fun being in the courtroom. I loved playing Matlock. Yes. Um, there was a a part of it that was very rewarding to me. You know, when you felt like you were the voice uh, for someone who didn't have a voice. You know, it's the reason we all go to law school, most most of us, to be Atticus Finch. Of course. And, and when you feel like you have a, a case that allows you to do that, then that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. But so much of your time is spent outside doing mm-hmm. paperwork, prep work, uh, that you don't have a life. And I realized very early on that I, I wasn't going to have a life. And it really was not a, a good fit for me where I was. So... Um, I, I did want to do something different, and I think that's what prompted me to get out of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so your next step after? I went to work for the Texas legislature. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a friend who uh, was friends with the director of the Senate Education Committee okay. in Austin, and I loved that job because it allowed me to use my background as a, a public school teacher mm-hmm. and my legal background uh, to work as general counsel for the Senate Ed Committee. And um, help them, you know, think about some legal implications for bills that were were coming before them. And uh, I I loved that. Advised the Senate Ed, you know, committee director. And Mm -hmm. uh, that was wonderful. I I loved working in that environment. Okay. And so uh, you did that for how many years? Uh, Just that one legislative session in 2001. One legislative session. Yeah, the Texas the Texas legislature meets from January to May. I mean, I knew that. Just some of my listeners probably didn't. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's it's a really didn't. it's a really hard system, and then you know you get an entire year and a half off, mm-hmm. and then you come back and you work another five months. But really, those five months that you work are are pretty intense and long hours and a um, lot of lot of schmoozing with lobbyists who come in too, and that's that's hard. Hard. Okay, so you did that for a while, and then next step was? After that, uh, actually, in May of that session, I got a call from my favorite professor at Abilene Christian, uh, Carly Dodd. I had Dr. Dodd. Did you really? He was great. That's why you excel at public speaking right there. He is such like a positive, good energy. Oh, yeah. Yes. He is a wonderful man, and he called me. And said, hey, Sally, we've got an opening uh, for debate coach at ACU. Mm-hmm. And I thought about two seconds and said, hmm, believe I'll go talk to you about that. Hmm. And one thing led to another, and I went back to ACU. Okay, and so you're ACU for a handful of years? Uh, ten years. Yeah, ten years. And um, so you did that for a while. Mm-hmm. And then eventually uh, you decided that you're going to start a nonprofit called Centerpiece. That's right. And... That was what year? 
2006 will be 10 years old this June. Okay, and so your legal training paid off because I'm assuming you were able to fill out all the forms for the 501c3. That's right. In your sleep. That's right. As a baby lawyer, uh, that's what I was assigned to do is to form some nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had that background. So I had to pay someone to help me do that when I started my church. You, on the other <laughs> hand, just were like, I'm awesome. I can do this myself. I don't know about that, but I knew how to collect all the paperwork that needed to be had. Okay, so you do that. So um, Centerpiece is an organization that works with uh, churches, parents, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, Give me the tag. What is the actual tagline? So I'm not botching it. The official mission statement of Centerpiece is that we provide safe places for men and women who experience same-sex attraction. Uh, What that translates into is that I work with uh, churches literally all over the globe, families all over the globe, individuals who experience same-sex attraction, uh, helping us have uh, kinder, gentler, more loving, more Christ-like conversations about faith and sexuality. Mm-hmm. So you've been doing this for 10, Ten years. years yeah. And uh, some people are wondering, like, what made you have an interest in this? Where did what, what where was the passion for this from? I uh, grew out of my own experience growing up as someone who experiences same-sex attraction and who is a Christian, someone who had grown up in church, mm-hmm. uh, particularly, you know, my, my background in tribe, uh, Church of Christ, and I knew that we were not having this conversation at all, and even in the places where we were trying to have it, it, we were not having it very well, Hmm. and I knew so many friends who, like myself, experienced same-sex attraction, but who had had a a really hurtful experience, either with church or family or both, and had uh, been very turned off uh, and very, very wounded by the whole Christian experience. So I wanted to help people find a place to, to talk in safe ways that wouldn't drive them further away from God. What do you think causes most places to not be a safe place to talk about this? I think we're scared to death uh, to talk about something that we haven't talked a lot about. I think we're fearful of the things that we don't understand, and we don't understand because we're fearful, and so it's this vicious cycle. And at the very worst, uh, that fear turns into uh, isolation, and and at its very worst, turns into hatred and violence, and, and we've seen too much of that. Okay, so if people have fear, what is the fear of? Like, what is the the, the big fear that causes all this negativity to happen? That's a great question. Thank you. Um, and I don't, I, I ask that question a lot too. Uh, what, what are we afraid of? I talk to church leaders a lot about that and, and they will talk about fear of, um, going in a direction that, um, they believe is not what God wants for them, uh, fear of something that they simply don't understand. And because it's it's dealing with something that's of a sexual nature, we, we have a history of not being able to talk very easily, very well about anything regarding sexuality. So this is just compounded because it deviates from our expectations of what sexual relationships are supposed to be. Yeah. So 
sexuality is something that's difficult for people to talk about. Do you do you see any uh, threads of as to like what that leads to, like or what? Excuse me, what that is coming from? Like, why is sexuality such a difficult thing in our churches for us to deal with? Mm, probably just uh, a long history, you know, centuries, Victorian ideas of, of sex being something that was dirty and degrading and that you didn't talk about in polite company and especially not in mm. Christian company, which is, is totally uh, antithetical to, to what God wants for us. I mean, God created us to be sexual beings. And so church ought to be the very place that we have those conversations, especially with our kids. But, um, we've, we've had centuries of not talking at all. And I think that's why we find ourselves where we are. Yeah. So one of the things that I keep hearing from you as like a, a big part of the work you're trying to do is trying to create spaces for people who have different conclusions on this very tough subject of how to engage uh, people with same-sex attraction. On the one hand, you have um, the all the way extreme, the Westboro Baptist, the uh, people holding the signs with, you know, God hates fags on it, and you right. go, oh, goodness, that's embarrassing. They're even a part yeah. of what we call Christianity, which exactly. hopefully we could say, maybe they're not really even, whatever. But then you have the other <laughs> end of the spectrum, people saying, okay, let's... Um, you know, this is 2016, we've advanced society, um, you know, we're, we're accepting, we're moving on, and you have people all in between in the spectrum of, um, you know, you have Christians on every side of this issue, and I sense, like, your work is you're trying to create space and say, there are g- people that have different conclusions, and somehow we can all make room at the table for each other. Maybe not um, uh, the Westboro Baptist branch of this religion, but most people can can make that happen. It seems like that would be such a difficult, um, it, it would be such a difficult thing to accomplish because many people don't feel like they can engage with people who have different conclusions on this very tough subject. Am I fair to say that? Oh yeah. That's, that's a, a very good description of the whole spectrum of views. Uh, anytime I go in to talk to people, whether it's a Sunday school class or a family or a, uh, an entire congregation, uh, you have people at both ends of the spectrum, usually, hopefully not the extreme uh, Westboro Baptist yeah. uh, view, but really and truly uh, a wide variety of beliefs and uh, understanding, misunderstanding, lots of misunderstanding of what it means to be gay, mm-hmm. uh, of, of what it means to be a gay Christian. And so um, it's really important uh, for us to create a safe place to come together and realize that we can have different views, that we can reach different conclusions, but that doesn't separate us as the body of believers. Why do you think people see this as like a zero-sum game? Like there's only one option that's right, and if you don't have this, then we can't be in community with each other. Well, I think it goes back a long way, and and this is just uh, Sally's opinion, but I I am hearing more and more of this opinion. You know, your your good friend Jonathan Stormont, and I talked. Friend of me, friend uh, of me. Oh oh, he's a friend, Luke. John Jonathan's a good guy. Don't let that secret out. <laughs> Jonathan and I talked at uh, Highland in Abilene a, a few years ago about how we 
as Christians have not often realized that we too have allowed this uh, infatuation with sexuality from our culture to infiltrate the church, that it has seeped into our Christian culture as well, Hmm. such that we have idolized um, sexuality. And and if you look at it from a Christian perspective, where is sexuality uh, allowed, permitted, encouraged? Well, that's in the confines of marriage and marriage between a man and a woman. So we have come to idolize those places in which sexuality is permitted, uh, albeit marriage, uh, marriage, family, children, we tend to uh, put those on a pedestal. And and anything that deviates from that certainly has to be the absolute worst possible thing that can happen. Any Hmm. picture that doesn't look like that of of sexual expression, um, it's it's a mix of all of that, Mm -hmm. I think. But that's just Sally's opinion. Now, that kind of reminds me of the rhetoric of... um uh, you know, maintaining the sanctity of marriage because the language is that if there is a practicing uh, gay couple in a monogamous, faithful relationship, that that would in, impair the ability for a heterosexual couple to have a sanctified marriage as though that is an affront on their own marriage. Um, yeah, and, and that, in, in, in light of, of my experience, doesn't, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It it doesn't have to be either or. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it seems that um, there are a lot of things that are hurting the sanctity of marriage. And w- what is the percentage uh, before I finish this of uh, American uh, lesbian, gay, practicing people? Like, what are we talking? Like, is it one percent, three percent, something like that? Uh, and and I would I would ask you to clarify what you mean by practicing. Oh my goodness, I don't know. Like how? W- w- okay, the LGBTQ. I, I have community. friends who would tell you that they don't need to practice. They're very good. Oh goodness, yes. Well, I would say I'm a practicing heterosexual. I there don't know. You, I don't know what the word. The, okay, it wasn't the right word. Okay, counselor. Okay, the <laughs> LGBTQ community. What percentage of the population are we talking here? You know, that's a great question, and I and I don't know. That we would under, ever know the answer okay, to that. Okay, over under 5%. I, I, Ballpark. I, I really and truly have no idea. Okay. Because I so just, many... Okay, I've just tried to... It's, it's a smaller... Small percentage, small yeah. Small percentage, okay. Because you're not going to have people who would even report. You've you, you got people... Okay, yeah. Which you I know, guess speaks to the, the importance of what you're doing because there are people exactly. who can't even... Yeah. Okay, what I was trying to say is there's a small percentage of people in that group compared to the heterosexual community. Sure. And so, okay, there are plenty of things that are hurting the sanctity of marriage, um, and we could talk about a lot of those as well. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, okay, so let's, let's follow this rabbit trail. The, the people, uh, there are many people who don't even feel like they can discuss their sexual orientation. Right. Which speaks to the fact that what you're doing is so valuable. Yeah. And one of the, the most formative experiences in, in my life um, was I had a friend... Um, who's who's open now, and I don't think it's disrespectful to speak even in ambiguities about this person's story, but he told maybe one person before he told me um, mm. that that he was gay, and 
So I was with him during the time in which he was making, um, trying to process what to do and trying to figure out how, okay, what's next? I don't, should I try to, should I pray away the gay? Should I, you know, just straighten up? Should I find a girl and just make out with her and that's going to, you know, get rid of the gay? Yeah. And I, I say that tongue in, t- tongue in cheek because obviously that wasn't sure. his experience. And as someone who pre- grew up with the idea that it's okay to say something that's stupid and say, well, that's just gay. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have sort of like this homophobic attitude where like, I'm not beating someone up who's gay, but you can use gay as a derogatory right. term, uh, which I believe is a homophobic. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that's something I learned through my friendship with this person. Right. But the process of him dealing with this was something that was so eye opening for me, and you're shaking your head because I'm assuming that's experience of other people sure. who finally get to know someone yes. who is same-sex attracted, and they yes. all of a sudden go, oh my goodness, all these stereotypes are just yeah. out the window. It, it becomes real at that point. It becomes the oh, person yeah. sitting right in front of you. It's the person that you love, that you've known all your life. It's the child in your Sunday school class. It's the person down the street. It's your niece. It's your nephew. It's your son. It's your daughter. Yeah. And all of a sudden, all bets are off. Your world is turned upside down. And everything you've thought to be true, suddenly you realize is not necessarily true. Because this is someone's real life experience. It's not just an issue for us to debate and have Mm -hmm. opinions on. It's someone's real life. And we realize that a lot of the the myths that we have believed about homosexuality are just that. They are myths. Mm -hmm. And that gets back to the fear that drives a lot of the conversation uh, and the misunderstandings that just perpetuate this uh, chasm and widen this chasm, especially between Christians and anyone who experiences same-sex attraction or who identifies as part of the LGBT community. Yeah. Hmm. So how how are you able to uh, continually push through on something which seems like it's um, working in the church, trying to get people to be more welcoming to a group that doesn't always feel welcome? Uh, how do you keep on going? Because it seems like this would be like the uh, like the old uh, Greek figure who was cursed by the gods to put this, push this rock up a hill only for it to keep rolling back down. Like, how do you keep going on, you know, trying to do such a, a daunting task? It's definitely about rocks. You've read Nehemiah. We're, we're moving rocks. Hmm. And, and that's a slow, uh, tedious, laborious task at times. But I get to talk with families, real families who are hurting. And I get to talk to uh, teenagers with with their parents' uh, permission who have their whole lives ahead of them, who feel like it's got to be an either-or situation. Either I can be a part of the church and know God and love God, or I can be gay. And to help a, a 14-year-old kid who's asking that question to realize oh, honey, God loves you right where you are. There is nothing that you can do or think or feel or say that's going to separate you from God's love. To help that kid know that he has community, a faith community that's going to love and surround him and walk with him in the midst of this uh, and and help discover answers for his life, Mm -hmm. that makes moving those rocks all the more Hmm. worth it. 
Okay, so if you're using the metaphor of moving rocks, so eventually you get all the rocks from the wrong side to the right side, and the rocks finally get there. What does that mean? Like when it finally, let's say you accomplish what you set out to do in Centerpiece, and you can finally say, I can retire. I'm going to now go and sue tobacco companies and make billions of dollars. (laughs) Been there, done that. Okay, what would be like... what would be your ideal goal, like that you look back twenty years from now and go, "This is what I wanted to do, and I've accomplished it." I, I want to see that fourteen-year-old boy in a faith community. I want to see that seventeen-year-old girl deeply embedded in a faith community uh, who loves her and supports her, uh, whatever she may end up believing, deciding for her life in regard to her sexuality. I want her to be deeply connected to the body of believers so that as a faith community, we can discern together what what does this need to look like for me as a follower of Christ who experiences same-sex attraction. If I don't get to decide that in the camp and I'm forced to decide that outside the camp, then I, I don't have God in my life at all. And so in 20 years' time, Uh, I pray that I do work myself out of a job and that we no longer need some niche ministry where everybody can send the person who comes to them and says, I experienced same-sex attraction. You you didn't send your friend away. You walked alongside your friend, and 10 to 1, you're still connected to that friend. And that's what we as the body of Christ um, need to come to. So if that happens so that churches become a safe place, and, and you don't need to send anybody to me, to the people that work with Centerpiece, then we, we will have accomplished something. And I believe God is opening doors for that to really happen. What do, you, what do you say to the person who feels like there's a tension between standing up for truth and standing up for, say, someone they love or they care about? Maybe it's their kid or maybe it's you know, someone who comes to their church and they want to help them out. Uh, and they want to help them out by being a friend to them. What if they feel like there's a dichotomy between those two things of standing up for the person and standing up for truth? How do you help them, um, you know, uh, navigate that that tension or that uh, dualistic thinking? I, you know, that's that's a real tension, and I think that's um, when we first get down on our knees and ask God what that needs to look like. Um, I believe we are first called to love wherever people are. Um, you know, if it's a parent uh, with a child who is uh, living something out that doesn't go along with what the parent wanted for them, maybe they're in a, a gay marriage, a uh, gay relationship, uh, and you've got parents, we, we talk with parents every day who may balk at that, who may believe that, that if they love and are welcoming of their, their son or daughter and their, their wife, husband of the same sex, that they would be somehow compromising their beliefs. Um, we're called to love first. You know, the, the prodigal's father uh, gave him his inheritance and, and sent him off, but he never, ever left the place of, expecting his return home. And and while that's not uh, an apt analogy in, in many ways, I, I love that verse at the end 
there in Luke 15 of the story, or, or midway through the whole story, where he says, but while he was still a long way off, the father ran out to meet him. That tells me uh, my response to someone with whom I might not agree. Um, I am still called to, to love and receive. I think that's what we see Jesus doing countless times of being with people whose lives didn't look at all like what we wanted them to look like, but he didn't turn them away. He loved them right where they are. People mm-hmm. say, well, yeah, but he told them to go and sin no more. Uh, out of out of first uh, building relationship with that person, uh, out of first responding, you know, the, the woman who was caught in adultery to whom he said that very statement, that was only after he stood up for her, mm-hmm. only after he went against every uh, religious tradition uh, to say, uh, who's without sin, cast the first stone. Mm-hmm. That's our model of, of love and acceptance. And so that's going to come first to me. I think the enemy's greatest tool is to make us believe that everything is black and white. And I think some of us have perhaps a, a greater capacity to to deal in the gray, um, to live in the tension of that. But um, that's where that's where faith and trusting God to uh, help us live in that tension comes in because turning someone away, denying them that, that unconditional love is, is never going to have the power that love and inclusion and grace um, has to make a difference in that person's life. Yeah. I, I assume some people hear the, you know, the world isn't just black and white, there's gray in it, and they don't feel comfortable with that at all. Yeah. Uh, some of us are very comfortable with the idea that there's ambiguity, there's more complexity than maybe we even uh, desire, but we know it exists. And some of us are fine to live in that. Uh, some might hear that and say something of, well, you only think there's black, there's not, some of you, some might say you only think there's a lot of gray because you're you're watering down what the real answer is. And that it is black and white, and I see it as black and white, so the only reason you don't have that same conclusion as me is because you know you don't read the Bible or you don't trust in God's word enough or something like that. I'm just, you're shaking your head because that has happened to you. Sure, Pe- people are going to start to think that I'm just the person who's telling all these things to you at your conferences and events. That's not the case. I'm just asking these questions, which I'm assuming you've had asked you before. Oh yeah, uh, lots of times, and you know that's that's why it's important that we have these conversations so that we can get to a a better place of understanding. It doesn't mean that we're going to agree, but we have to be able to have these conversations. And we have to do that for our kids' sake, because the ways that we have not had these conversations and the ways that the conversations have been had with such venom and such hatefulness, such ugliness, is shaping not just our kids' views of, of sexuality, but more importantly, it's shaping their views of the church. It's shaping their views of God and whether or not they can trust in a, a loving God who is for them no matter what. Mm-hmm. You've told me stories of kids who came out to their parents and their parents said, I'm not talking to you anymore. And they just put up a, a, a shield and they basically shun their own kids. Yeah. What do you, what do you say to that parent? Um, who's done that? Or maybe some of my listeners are going, 
yeah, I know someone at my church who's done that to their kids. Um, how do we, what do we do to help them not have such terribly unloving responses to their own kids? What do we do? The same thing we do for the prodigal. You love people right where they are. Hmm. You know, it's really hard for me uh, to say that I'm called to love the the person who's uh, carrying signs with Westboro Baptist. Yeah. But that's what I'm called to do. I'm called to love my enemies. Mm-hmm. And at that point in time, uh, when you become so counter to what I believe is the gospel, um, that could denote you as, as my enemy, even though you believe in the same God I believe in and, and love him too. Um, I'm called to love you, and I'm called to love the parent who says to their child, you're no longer my son. And you know that that happened to my friends uh, when I was in college at a Christian university in the early 80s, but it's still happening today where um, students whose, whose fathers are ministers turn them out, turn them away. Uh, if that's still happening today, um, we've got to talk about this. But I'm called to love the father who says to me, I'm emailing you because my son asked me to, and I'm only doing it because I told him that I would. I really don't care what you have to say. I, I already have my opinions on this. I'm called to love him. He's my brother in Christ. Mm. And there will be a time when all of that is is gone. But uh, we've got to have these conversations so that no more children are turned out. And in the interim, we are called to stand in as moms and dads and aunts and uncles. That's what being the body of Christ and being family is all about. Yeah. Yeah, I love that idea that we're, we we might not be the parents, but we can be the adopted aunts and uncles and Mm -hmm. brothers and cousins and kids. That's right. uh, That's a beautiful ecclesiology, like where you have this beautiful sense of what the community of faith can be and should be. Yeah. I love it. So as you're describing what you do, I'm assuming sometimes you get the call where you're like, um, Sally, I want you to come talk to my kid. He's uh, 16 and he says he's gay and I want you to fix him. And it kind of reminds me of Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer. I don't know if you've ever thought of this before, but he says, I'm supposed to come in and fix the dog. But really what I'm doing is I'm fixing the parents. Like I'm fixing the... And that's, it seems like, do you want to put that in your card? Oh my goodness, that's funny. Yeah, Sally Gary. Um, yeah. The LGBTQ whisperer. <laughs> can, can we just say this once and for all? It's really hard to say the LGBTQ. You're not saying Q when yeah. you say it. Do I have to say Q? Because we're leaving off a lot of other letters, the P and the A and the I. And, can yeah. we just get something that's a little easier to say? Yeah. I mean, well, I, I tend to just use the word gay as a, a, a catch-all. Can I do that? Yeah, that's fine with me if you do that. I, it's not offensive to me. Well, you know? then, if anyone's mad at me, because from now on I'm going to say the gay community. Okay, I've, you can do that with I, me. I feel like some people are going to be judgy. Of uh, me for d- doing some it. people will on, on both ends of the spectrum. People are always... So it's important 
whenever you know you're learning a new language and you're talking to somebody who uses who is more well versed in that language than you are, just ask them. And I'm I'm fine with you saying the gay community. Okay, can I tell you why I'm more than willing to say the LGBTQ community is because I have put more than enough non welcoming rhetoric into the Christian community as a teenager. Say, oh, that's gay. Oh, that's gay. And if a small, unwieldy, awkward phrase has to take a few extra seconds of my life, <laughs> I feel like I kind of owe it to the universe to do that. I've God bless you, Luke. Yeah. Okay, so some people are listening to this, and they're going, you know what? I want to learn more. They're going to go get your book, um, of course. You're gonna Hope get so. Th- it's yeah. on Amazon. Yeah, get that. But also, they're like, what if I want to hear... It'll give you all the answers that you ever wanted to know about, yeah. about being gay. Yeah. That's exciting. Um, I'm also going to tell you... That was sarcasm. No, it, it is. Um, my wife just texted and said that she just saw... Uh, she just said hi to Jesse from Breaking Bad. Oh, my. So she's real pumped about oh that. Oh, my. You know what else I'm pumped about? What's that? The end of October, I hear there's a conference that I'm going to now be going to. Yes, and we are absolutely thrilled that you're going to be doing a podcast from the conference. So I guess I, we just officially made this happen. Yes, yes. I, I, you're not getting out of it now. <laughs> So it is uh, the last week in October, 26th? 27th through the 29th. Okay, because my wife's birthday is the 26th, so let's make sure it's the 27th. We'll celebrate. Mm-hmm. We'll celebrate, Lindsay, while you're there. And who else has already agreed to be at this event? Uh, Richard Beck is going to be there, uh, Wade Hodges, and his wife, Heather, mm-hmm. uh, who is a, a phenomenal painter. Uh, Mark Hadley is going to be there. Pat Bills uh, from the Highland Oaks Church. Patrick, Patrick Hunter Bills. Uh, Ken Sakrowski from ACU. And we have others who are in the not confirmed but in the gathering stage. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a great conversation. In, in the future when people say who's going to be at this, this event, what order is my name going to go in? Well, you know, Luke. Um, Before or after Beck? Well, I don't know. Richard's got the age thing on you. He's he's got uh, the alphabetical order thing on you. It's true. You know, let's let's get some books under your belt. Okay. There. As long as I'm before Wade, I'm fine. Well, oh come on, come Richard. Okay, fine. Wade, no, that's not good. <laughs> Sally, it. I can't believe it took. I don't know how many episodes I'm on right now, but it's like a hundred and. 60, I think, or something, and it's been... It's fantastic. And I can't believe it's 160-something that, that finally got you on the podcast. Hey, that's a good number. We're doing it now. Yeah, that's all that matters. Very exciting. Well, Counselor, um, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.